Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, and look who is back in the co-host chair today. It is our good old friend, Joseph Peters. By the way, early happy birthday, and by the way, where the hell have you been? Uh, I went to Las Vegas, and you tell me if I should be judged for this, Jason. When I got to the airport, I called an Uber to get to my hotel. When I returned to the airport, I took the bus. So... You tell me if that's just stereotypical Las Vegas, boy got taken to the cleaners and couldn't afford a lift anymore, <laughs> or if I'm just being economical because the bus stop was not even half a block away from my hotel, and I know that's the smarter way to get to the airport. Were you taken to the cleaners? I wouldn't call it taken to the cleaners. I did not. How do- much money did you lose? It's so... I. Nobody wants to hear about your bad beats. I was even up or even ahead by about like 10 or 15 bucks going into the last day, and then I got knocked out at the roulette and the blackjack tables, and uh, that was that. That was that. Yeah, it, your, your fortunes change very quickly in Las Vegas. The, I always tell people you have to play very conservatively and just try to like get ahead at $10 at every table, and in the words of the great Kenny Rogers, you got to know when to fold it, man. You got to oh, yeah, know definitely. when to walk away. Yeah, I when I used to either hang out there a lot or do other gambling, I, I would go and make quick hits. Go in, make a couple of bucks, and then leave, and I would think of it this way. All right, I just made $30. Well, that pays for lunch and dinner. And then and then be done and say, all right, you just bought me lunch and dinner. Thanks. Yeah. And then the next day, try to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. it's not going in there, oh, I just won $15,000. That, right. that never really happened. And I try to go into it with realistic expectations. Like, all right, I'm walking into Las Vegas with X amount of dollars. After food, if I walk out with Y amount of dollars, I did okay. I did okay. I did okay. Now, I... Uh, I am the kind of guy because I I, um, I I like to think of myself as high minded. And speaking of that, we have a, a very a really high minded person on the show today. Beautiful. Uh, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but I I learned how to count cards, um, okay. and it's not illegal. It's discouraged um, because you can't really stop somebody from just using their natural brain power to gain an advantage over um, a game of chance, as you as you think. But yep. but really, blackjack is there there is there is chance. But there's also statistics and odds yes. uh, that play into it, even if they put give you six decks. Well, and even card counting is just a matter of knowing when you're probably about to get hot. Right. Right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not. It's really, it's, you're managing the probabilities of when it's more in your favor than in not. Correct. Because just because you can count cards does not mean that you can win 15 hands in a row. Right. Exactly. There's still a matter of chance and luck involved. That's exactly right. Even though you might have seen the movies, there was that one famous movie where the kids, uh, I think from MIT, did that. Yep. Yep. Um, but they also had uh, some uh, really smart guys, and then they had, it was collusion, basically. Very because, large bankrolls. Yeah. Yes. Very large bankrolls, and they would have people come in and then just drop a whole ton of money. It was it was really an elaborate scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm just a doofus trying to you know keep up with going. All right, my odds are pretty good right now. I'll put more down uh, and try to win these bets than than when the odds are not in my favor. Dustin Hoffman counted cards in Rayman too, right? Oh yes. And then basically. there was uh, what's his name, the guy from The Hangover, Beardo, Zach oh, Galifianakis. Right. Yeah. The man between two ferns. Between two ferns. Well, coming up on the show, we're going to talk with Dr. Henry Monka. I believe I'm pronouncing his name right. I, I had to listen to his YouTube video to, to get the pronunciation right. He's with uh, Posit Science, and he's going to talk to us about training our brains to drive better. Okay. He has a program that's supposed to have wonderful benefits for us, so we'll talk to him about that later on. He, he's got some pretty big deal credentials. He's a really, really smart guy. 
Uh, I'm, I'm really interested if this training actually would help with autonomous cars. I mean, the actual cars and the way they drive and try to make them more like humans. Right. right. Um, so I want to ask him that question. Uh, in just a little bit. But first, there was a guy in central Los Angeles who was driving drunk, and it's how police found him that is humorous. You see, the guy who uh, was not only driving drunk, but also involved in a hit-and-run crash, he eventually came up to a parking lot area that's gated. And it's the kind of gate where you have to punch in a code into a keypad to get the gate to come up. Well, police said the driver tried leaning out of the window, out of his pickup truck, to punch in the code right there to the gate keypad. Well, that's when he fell out of the driver's side window because he was so drunk and he got his foot stuck in the steering wheel and he was hanging upside down from the window of the truck. And that is when the California Highway Patrol took a picture of him as he's hanging upside down from the driver's side window before they helped him up and out of the truck and put him in the back of a police car. What you pickup truck right not like a semi truck no it was a pickup truck okay but it was amazing. it was raised up a little bit it wow. was oh yeah so you see the picture of him hanging upside down backwards so his back is basically against the side of the the the, the driver's side door with his head just dangling there it's like arms dangling he's drunk and so you know you got to be getting the biggest head rush it's got to be horrible he probably had to pee i have no idea thing. how this man did this it doesn't make any sense well, so he's so he's leaning out of his car, out of his truck. No, out the, of the physics window. makes sense. Oh yeah, the, and then the, bam, there he's. There I he understand how his body would do that. I don't understand why his mind directed his body to do that. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. But I mean, imagine you're that drunk, so drunk you fall out of your truck and you get your foot stuck in the steering wheel and you hang upside down. Ugh. Now that is a special kind of drunk. Were you that kind of drunk in Las Vegas? No. No. How was your Uber, by the way? <laughs> it was solid. It was much better than the previous Uber that I took in the Tesla where the uh, autopilot didn't understand how stop signs worked. You took a Uber and a Tesla? Yeah, the, I took an Uber to a Christmas party, and it was in a Tesla. And the, I, So I asked the guy, I was like, can you show me the autopilot feature? Because I hadn't seen it in person before. He said, yeah, sure. So he takes his hands off the wheel. We're on like, the back streets of Denver, and we're behind another car, and we both pull up to a four-way stop. The car in front of us goes, autopilot on the Tesla thinks, oh, I can go too, and just starts going through the intersection. The driver is not paying attention. Two other cars are going in opposite directions, and both of them are about to T-bone us before this driver gets attention, hits the brake, and and corrects his autopilot. And then we both looked at each other, and we're like, I guess they have some work to do. (laughs) I guess so. Yikes. Yeah. Well, autopilot. Not quite there yet with the autonomous technology. No, sir. Well, you know, the legislative session is just starting. Uh, We had our new governor inauguration yesterday. Uh, We had a whole bunch of roads right around the state capitol, Colorado state capitol, closed yesterday, including one of the main ones that takes folks from uh, our I-25 to the south. It's Lincoln Street. And Lincoln Street was closed down right across, right next to the state capitol. And that's a road, major road that takes people into downtown Denver. And I vow, by the way, if I was ever elected governor, to never have any roads closed for my inauguration. I vow that right now. Okay. That's a so strong if, campaign promise. So if I ever am a candidate for governor of the state, great state of Colorado, that will be my major platform issue. No roads closed for inaugurations. It's a good one, though. I'm in. I think so. Anyway, so the governor, we have a new governor. We have a lot of new uh, members of the House legislative body, both in the Senate and the House. Um, and they've already started introducing some bills, transportation bills, no less, into uh, the 
session. So I've been perusing some of those because I like that light, light kind of reading. And here's one that would increase the money from the general fund that's going to go to transportation. They're already set to spend about $150 million from the general fund into transportation this year. They want to, at least this bill, would up that from 150 to $340 million. I hope that does go somewhere, but I'm pretty sure it won't. Because I no. don't think because that was a, a Republican bill, and I think the Democrats will say no, we're not going to we're not going to do that. There's another bill that would prohibit Colorado from adopting California-style vehicle emission standards and keep what the federal government already recommends, basically what we have now, and not go with more stringent standards for mm. emissions. I, I, that will probably be killed as well, I yes. would imagine. There's another bill that would change current law that prohibits already the use of wireless telephones while driving for people under 18 to include all drivers of all ages. And the way they word it is wireless telephones, but they would change that wording as well to include all mobile electronic devices. Hmm. So that basically would include iPads, maybe you're, if you're listening to this I, uh, this podcast, Anything that would be electronic in the car and you're of legal driving age from 16 or I guess maybe 15 all the way up till infinity uh, that you wouldn't be able to use any electronic device in your car. However, you would be able to still use the Bluetooth option from your phone if, you're, if it's all hands-free. Where, where do you stand with that particular bill? Uh, that, that's a little bit too much where you can't even touch. I think there are some places where you're not even allowed to touch or grab your phone. There are some places where you can't talk on your phone, uh, unless it is in a Bluetooth mode, you know, maybe that's okay. But to, to not be able to manipulate your phone in some way, whether it's for GPS use, um, they say you can use it still for emergency situations. Try honestly trying to enforce that law would be extremely difficult well here's the thing i think there's some merit to it i think phones are a distraction no matter how you look at sure. it okay um i think making people go exclusively hands-free is is appropriate right because you don't want to cut people off from the world you just don't want them looking at a screen i think that the one scenario that people are going to throw back at you is what about google maps what if exactly. I'm trying to right. GPS from point A to point B? And I think if you look at Uber drivers, right, it, as an instructive example here, if they're going to be on a Google map, they look at that before they stop driving, then they don't touch the phone again, right, unless they're adjusting it, yep. by and large. And so there's no reason why the general public can't do that, too. Map it, then drive. Don't drive it, and then once you get on the road, say, all right, now I can map it. They also want to raise the fines for the first offense if you were caught uh, manipulating your electronic device from fifty dollars to three hundred. The second offense would go from a one hundred dollar fine to a five hundred dollar fine. The third offense would go up to a seven hundred and fifty dollar fine. Those are the kind of fines that I'm talking about that would actually start to decrease or at least make people think about, hey, I, I'm not gonna you now you now use my phone because if I just got dinged for three hundred bucks and I know the next one's five hundred, that's a big fine to swallow. I, th- I think you gotta have a steeper escalation than that. Like first offense a hundred and then the second offense becomes four hundred and then we're talking about seven hundred you know what I mean? Right. Like, like instead of right off out of the gate the first time somebody pops me for using my phone, three hundred dollars is a lot of money. I'm interested to see if this makes it out of committee. Uh, I like how they're starting to think about this sort of thing, because even though in Colorado it's technically illegal to text and drive, 
uh, you could still read and drive. You could still manipulate your electronic device. This basically would change that and, and supersede that law and make it illegal, mm-hmm. uh, not allowed for you to actually use your phone basically for any way. Very interesting. Now, the one uh, bill that has come through so far in the last couple of days that I was most interested in, uh, at least for the show, because I, I think it's a pretty big deal, it would actually authorize a public-private partnership group to petition the Colorado State Patrol to create a new or modified hazardous materials route. And the reason that's a big deal is because it would basically require our Department of Transportation to conduct a study to find out the feasibility of allowing hazardous materials trucks through the Eisenhower-Johnson tunnels. Now, this is a really big deal, especially for truckers hauling fuel who right now have to drive over Loveland Pass to go from one side of the Continental Divide to the other. Now, for all the listeners, because you're kind of looking at me with, with a blank yeah, I know stare. What the continent, I know what the Continental Divide is. Right, so, yeah. right. For the listeners who are out of Colorado, we have a major east-west interstate here. It's I-70. You can drive I-70 from Baltimore to Utah, basically. It, it's a big deal. It's one of the major, two major interstates we have, I-70 and I-25. And I-70, at the Continental Divide, there are a pair of tunnels. They were built back in the 70s at about 11,000 feet in elevation. Now, it allows traffic to go under the divide for about a mile and a half. It's nice. It's smooth. It lets you go at 55 miles an hour. And before the tunnels were built, you would have to go over the divide on this road called Loveland Pass. You go over Loveland Pass. It's a windy, two-lane, narrow road. It, it demands your attention when you're driving on it. And that's in a car when it's the summertime and it's dry and sunny. Now imagine you're driving a truck that is that is hauling a tanker full of gasoline, and imagine driving that tanker full of gasoline on a, on that windy road that's covered in ice and snow in the dark. And then imagine, oh, it could be 50-mile-an-hour winds blowing all that ice and snow all over the place. That is inherently dangerous when you're doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, so the mm-hmm. truckers would prefer to go through the Eisenhower Tunnel. And when Loveland Pass does close during the wintertime because of either avalanche danger, avalanche mitigation, which actually bring avalanches down and then clear it because that happens, you could be driving a tanker and then, hey, guess what? There's an avalanche that just took you out. They actually will allow those hazardous materials trucks to go through the Eisenhower Tunnel at the top of each hour. They stop all traffic. They escort them through, allow them to go through, and then they open it up the tunnel traffic to everybody who wants to drive on it. But this new bill would allow for at least the process, because it's the state patrol that really handles where the hazardous material route are in our state, and and it's most likely in all other states as well, for those states' uh, hazardous materials routes. And it would change the way that we get fuel from one side of the state to the other. Because we manufacture and, and have most of the fuel on here, the east side of the state, and they need it on the west side. It would be a lot easier for them to get it. It would be less expensive for them. It would be safer for the truckers. The gas, uh, the prices of gasoline would most likely go down. Uh, the price to ship it would actually go down. The insurance rate would be lower because they're not driving over Loveland Pass, which is crazy. Um, so I, I thought we might be able to find somebody to talk about that on the show maybe next week. Oh, for sure. There's got to be a hazmat trucker somewhere. Who wants to describe right. the differences between the two? I, I mean, just but but the, I think that what the state patrol is worried about, they're thinking, well, why don't we just do that? Is that what they're worried about is a fire inside the tunnel. Now they have a new fire suppression or at least upgraded fire suppression system inside each of the side of the tunnels, and so it can handle, they say, a tanker fire and put it out. They have foam and water and all the other stuff to put out the fire. 
However, just imagine if they had a tanker or maybe two of them and somebody had ill will and they purposefully crashed the tankers full of gasoline, highly flammable gasoline inside the tunnel, maybe at both ends, to try to do damage. And that would shut down the tunnel, could be weeks or months, um, maybe even a year to fix and repair any damage that might happen to the tunnel. Um, So I think that's what the State Patrol is most worried about, using the tunnel all the time as a hazardous material. I mean, you you really can't overstate how much damage could be done in a short period of time. Oh, sure. If something was to go up quickly. Well, and imagine if it was a small fire, it would shut it down for the day. And let's say you had a big fire and the one of the sides of the tunnels was closed down for a couple of weeks or a month. That would destroy the western slope economy for all the ski resorts, Vail, Breckenridge, Aspen. All those places rely on I-70 to get traffic through. Mm-hmm. They rely on it, and they would destroy the economies of those places. Where does the food come from, Denver? Where do their gas come from, Denver? Where do all their other supplies, where's, where's your Amazon package coming from, Denver? And it's going west up into the mountains. And it's going west into Utah. I mean, Denver is a big deal city here. And to get anything out to the west, whether it's through here, Utah, parts of Arizona, I mean, they're using I-70. And so it behooves them to keep it open. Yeah. So really, there are two interesting sides to that debate. And it'll be interesting to, fo- to, to follow that. So I, wanted, I saw this story today. And I wanted to get your take on this. Because the last time I was on a Frontier flight, I bought some drinks for my kids. It was just some juice, and but, but because I was at a Frontier flight, I had to pay for the drinks. So they don't take cash. You have to use a credit card. And so the flight attendant handed me that little card reader. They take your card, they, they swipe it, and then they handed it to me to sign. But on that place for me to sign, I saw a little section for a tip. And I had to look twice because I'm thinking, a tip? Am I supposed to give you a tip? You're you're the flight attendant, and you're and you're and you're cruising up and down with the cart already, and right. you and you have and you're handing me a juice for my daughter who's sitting next to me, and you want me to give you two or three dollars as a tip. I I was taken aback a bit by it, so I I did not tip. It just didn't seem right for some reason. Now Frontier Airlines, I think, was one of the first airlines to start this tip your flight attendant thing, and the attendants used. Uh, to collect all this money at the end of their flight, and then they would split it up equally between all of the flight attendants. As of January 1st, Frontier's 2,200 flight attendants now will not pool their gratuities. Now it's every man and woman for themselves. They are all working now for their own tips. Because forever, flight attendants have emphasized their role as safety professionals, right? Right. Reminding all the passengers that at any moment they must become emergency personnel if someone gets sick or gets too drunk or, or the flight has, let's say, some mechanical problem of some sort and we need to make a landing or a, a, you have to, God forbid, be escorted out of the plane, helped out of the plane, right? Well, pushing the drink cart was basically a side job. And, and, and as I remember, most of the flight attendants saw that as a demeaning part of the job, probably the most demeaning part of the job, right? Because they considered themselves really airline safety professionals. Okay, okay. Well, the Association of Flight Attendants, which represents Frontier employees, they objected to the introduction of tipping back in 2016. 
They said management moved forward with a tipping option for passengers in hopes it would dissuade flight attendants from standing together for a fair contract and in an effort to shift additional costs to passengers. Now, Frontier Airlines said in a statement, We appreciate the great work of our flight attendants and know that our customers do as well. So the payment tablet gives passengers the option to tip. It is entirely at the customer's discretion, and many do it. Now, despite this differing view on tips, Frontier attendants kept uh, pressing to keep their own gratuities because if, just like you do at a restaurant, if I'm hustling, I want to keep the money that I'm making, not share it with you who are just sitting in the back of the plane reading your book, right? Right. But, but you're both doing your job. Right. One of you by hustling and the other by getting drinks and making sure everybody's safe. But it's... Well, let's say I'm getting you a drink and I'm I'm making some tips. Should I share that with you who's sitting in the back of the plane? This is introducing an entirely new job category, though. I mean, like, you never felt – have you ever been on a plane and felt like you were getting hustled by a flight attendant? No. Is that even, like, in your vocabulary no. or in your mind as something that could happen on a plane? Uh-uh. And now all of a sudden tipping is a factor. And tipping right. ne- necessitates hustling a little bit. Exactly. Because actually the way Frontier has set this up, tipping is at the discretion of each flight attendant. Because they can choose whether to trigger that tip option or not when they hand you that tablet for you to sign. They are in control of that. So that flight attendant put down on that tablet, yeah, let's have that tip option and I can send it out to people and get tips. Frontier's tablet-based system allows the flight attendants to skip the tip screen when a customer pays. The airline said it doesn't track how often flight attendants solicit tips via the tablets, but they and they also de- declined uh, to release specifics on how much in tips they distribute monthly to the flight attendants because everything has to go through Frontier since you're paying with a credit card and then they distribute it later. An airline spokesman said flight attendants had earned millions of dollars in tips over the past three years. Okay. Okay, so if they... if. Flight attendants earn $2 million total, that would be millions, in tips. And let's say Frontier flies, what, 700 routes, 1,000 flights a day? Oh, I don't think they fly 1,000 flights a day. But I'm saying, like, that number that number goes down to, like, flight attendants made, on average, like, $6 a flight very quickly. Maybe. But that's six more bucks than I had yesterday. But it's also an incentive for Frontier to pay them less because they can say, oh, you made all this tip money on this flight because people, and really to the flight attendant union's point in 2016, they couldn't have said it better. This was all a way for Frontier to pay the flight attendants less because they're, quote unquote, making more money because now they're tipped employees. Or try to pay them less because they were already negotiated uh, contracts with, right. with the union. Now, the two other national low-cost carriers, Spirit and Allegiant, they don't allow tipping in their customer payment systems. Uh, and, but the union, therefore, Frontier and between Frontier and the flight attendants, they've been trying to reach a new contract for a couple of years Uh, Back in November, the flight attendants voted to authorize a strike, even though the federal mediators uh, are saying they're not yet at an impasse, so they're not going to allow for a strike just yet. I I really wonder how this is going to compromise and complicate service on your flight with the different levels and really the potential differences between big tippers and others. So let's say let's pretend you're a big shot. You're you're Elon Musk on the airplane, and not Elon Musk, and you just (laughs) 
<laughs> and and you just tipped twenty bucks to the uh, flight attendant every time you, you she's bringing you a juice. Okay. Now let's say there's a mechanical problem. We we're crashing and and we land and, and getting everybody out. Do you get preferential treatment because? You were a good tipper, and I wasn't, and and I have to sit in the back of the plane and, and burn up. That's why this is so bad, though. You can't introduce tipping in an industry where tipping was not already the standard. Right. I was on Southwest. I spent a lot of time in Vegas thinking about tipping, right? You tip your dealer. You tip your bartender. You tip your waitress. You oh, tip yeah. just tip about everybody. everybody there. You tip the person who handles your bag. You tip your t- cab driver. You don't tip the flight attendant. When I was on Southwest and I was getting complimentary beverages, not getting hustled for $6 for a juice like you do on Frontier, I didn't have to worry about tipping the flight attendant because that was understood that the flight attendant makes a full-time salary with benefits. And frankly, it is demeaning to the flight attendant to turn them into a tipped employee. Exactly, because the restaurant, when you go into a restaurant, you understand as a customer that those employees are already getting a lower wage. They're all, and, then, and they're making that up. With the promise of tips, good tips. So if you hustle and you're and you're nice to the customers and you're doing you know a really good job and, and you're working for it, you actually might get more tips than than the person who doesn't. So it's all a service based industry at that point. But they but you go into it knowing that each of these restaurants or when you're in Vegas, the bartenders and servers or whatever, they're not making as much as uh, minimum wage. I mean, they're not. And so you know that the tips are making that up, and and, and they right. do really well with their tips. Exactly. Now you're going to introduce. So should uh, every all, all let's say, uh, let me think of a of another good example. Uh, who would be another good example to think about? Who's not a tipped employee, and and who who you're going to be tipping? It's just it just seems odd. It seems like you go to your insurance salesman, and and you're going to go. Uh, tip that person for well, yeah. oh yeah thank thanks for the good insurance deal here's three bucks or you go to the dealership you drop twenty grand on a car and it's like oh let me throw you an extra fifty you did such a good job selling right. it to me no no that's it's not just how weird. it works it just seems strange I already I already made the investment in this car in this insurance plan in this flight when I paid the money for the ticket. That should have included everything. I shouldn't be paying, getting charged for stuff on top of that. And somebody said when we they heard this story, they said, well, it might make some of the uh, flight attendants nicer. Well, get yeah. Well, it get might because they're here. looking to get more tips. But it also might make some meaner because they are here. not getting the tips that they think they might deserve. It changes the st- it changes everything, really. If you think your flight attendant isn't being nice to you, you need to go to the airport lava- airplane lavatory and take a good look in the mirror and ask yourself why the flight attendant isn't being nice to you. It's <laughs> it is just, I, I think, the wrong way to go. Now, I can see what Frontier wants to do. They want, like you said, pay the flight attendants less. Work out a negotiated deal with the union to pay them less. That will never happen. The union will never let that happen. What the union will allow for is to keep the uh, increase in pay and also their tips. And probably because unions like to collectively bargain, they will probably want to go back to the collective bargain of the tips as well and sharing of the tips. Not everybody gets their own individual tips. Potentially, yeah. I could see that. That would be the union preference, I would believe. But I don't know. I'm not part of that union. I'm not a flight attendant. If I was a flight attendant, sure. Who doesn't want to make some extra money, get some extra cash? I worked at a valet, and and it was great because that's what I worked for. I I got minimal money for me working as a valet, but I worked for tips. It was the same thing when I was doing delivering pizzas. Minimal money 
for the pizzas. Got a little money uh, reimbursed for uh, the driving for gasoline. Uh, but then I got most of my money with tips. Uh, but that's what you're working for, mm-hmm. and you know it because so you're hustling. So I tried to hustle when I was delivering pizzas, and I tried to do my best and be friendly and, and be uh, uh, very welcoming when I was a valet and help out and open the doors and do all that kind of stuff and, and try to get a little bit extra money. Yes, sir. So that's that's the way it works. I don't think it works, though, with the airlines. No. It just doesn't. I like to think of myself, uh, Joseph, as a high-minded guy. I mean, you you think of yourself as a high-minded person as well, right? A much higher-minded person than you, in fact. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I like to do puzzles. I like to do you know the Sudoku. I don't. I can't even say it, but I like to do it. Uh, I like the word searches and the mahjong, all that stuff. Well, anyway, I, it's look. It's good for my brain. I, I know I need to work out my brain occasionally, and a task I really think that you have to be brain alert for is driving, because there's so much happening while we drive. So don't you think it would be a good idea? to have people train their brains to be better drivers. Well, that's the opinion of Dr. Henry Monka, who is the chief executive officer of Posit Science. He joined Posit Science as, at its inception in 2003 as the vice president of research and outcomes, where he led the first large-scale clinical trials of a publicly available cognitive training program. Uh, Dr. Monka earned his Ph.D. in neuroscience at the University of California, San Francisco, and now he joins us here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Doctor, welcome to the very high-minded Driving You Crazy podcast. It's uh, wonderful to be in such illustrious high-minded company. It's nice to talk to you, <laughs> Well, we, we like to be very brainy around here, but we've always heard <laughs> that it's good to work out your body. And it's also good, like I try to do, at least to work out your brain. But what is it about brain training that makes it good for the task of driving? Well, you hit the nail on the head just a moment ago when you said how complicated driving is. You know, when scientists look at driving, driving is actually one of the most cognitively complex things a person does in modern society. Uh, There's so much going on. There's objects to track. There's surprises that happen, like a ball rolls out on the street in front of you and you have to figure out there's a kid behind it. There's things that are happening fast. You're coming up on an intersection and a truck might be coming through it. You're often doing it in terrible conditions. It's raining. It's snowing. It's dark. All of that represents operations, information processing operations that your brain has to do, and it has to do it fast, it has to do it accurately, and has to get it right every time. So driving is hard on the brain, without a doubt. Now, what specifically is this training? And like, What do people see? What do they do? How do they get trained into this? Yeah, so the kind of training we're talking about here is what we call brain plasticity-based training. And what that means is these are computerized brain exercises that actually are designed to rewire the structure and the function and the chemistry of your brain. And that's an important thing to call out because you mentioned a moment ago crosswords and Sudoku and all kinds of things like that. And those are great. They're fun things to do. I would never tell anyone not to do them. Um, But they're not designed to sort of physically change how your brain processes information. And this idea got its start a little while ago. If you were to rewind the clock, if you were to go back to, let's say, 1970, and you were to ask any brain scientist, how does the brain work, everyone would have told you the same thing. The brain's like a computer chip inside your skull. It's hardwired. It does what it's supposed to do. And, of course, what that means is if that chip gets old and it wears out or if it gets bumped and a few of the wires break, then, hey, too bad. There's not a lot coming back from that. And that's pretty much how we thought about the brain uh, for a long time. As we get old, we just assume the brain wears out. 
And uh, of course, this is this is why we might think that uh, as we start to get older, we start to have problems driving. You know, as you know, as we get older, people are at a much higher risk for having various kinds of crashes. And that's very clear that that's because their brain is in some sense not as sharp as it used to be uh, when we were younger. Um, but a revolution happened in the 80s and the 90s, and what we realized is the brain's not really like a computer chip at all. In fact, it's a living part of your body, and it's constantly changing and reorganizing and restructuring itself in response to what we ask it to do. And that happens when we're kids, when we learn a new language. It happens when we're adults, if we move to a new city and have to learn our way around. And in fact, it can happen if we're 103 years old and decide we feel like playing the piano a bit. All of those things, we can rewire the brain. And so what we're trying to do with these brain exercises is we're trying to rewire the brain in a way that makes a person's brain faster and more efficient, and in this case, specifically for the cognitive tasks of driving. So uh, you ask what it looked like, and in this case, what we're trying to do is we want to make people's visual system faster and more accurate, and we want to do that particularly in the peripheral vision, because one of the most common sources of a crash for someone of any age is something happens in the peripheral vision that they just don't see. You've probably heard the phrase, uh, you know, from people you talk to around driving, is you know, it just came out of nowhere. No right. way to avoid that crash, right? right. And, uh, and of course, you know, that can happen. That's our experience as it came out of nowhere. But it didn't really come out of nowhere usually, right? <laughs> usually it was out there in your peripheral vision somewhere and you just didn't quite catch it fast enough. So what these brain exercises do is they speed up and make more accurate all your visual system, but in particular your ability to see things you know, out of the corner of your eye quickly. And as a result, you stay safer on the road because there's a lot of crazy drivers out there, as you know, and they're coming out of all kinds of, uh, all kinds of places on the road. Now, I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but this is a particular interest to me because I do have an eye condition and it's just eroding away at my peripheral vision. So oh. I'm wondering if what what you're saying is through your research is that somebody with a condition like that, as that peripheral vision begins to go, that's really going to be a main contributor to perhaps a decline in driving ability as well. Yeah, I would I would like to describe it if I may as a as a as a you know you may be at elevated risk for having a having an accident. You know your driving abilities you still know how to drive right, right. Um, but uh, but because there's less information maybe coming into your brain as quickly and accurately as uh, as you might like, then you're right. You might be uh, you know something might come at an intersection that could be a risk to you, and uh, you know there's a oh go ahead. Well, and I also wanted to ask how do, so how do you improve peripheral vision? Uh, what are the what do these games look like I guess you'd call it to improve your ability to move that eye quicker or however you see yeah. it quickly. So one of the core exercises I'll, I'll talk about was developed by scientists uh, uh, in the in the early 90s and then undergone extensive development since then. And you know what they did is they designed a computerized task where you look straight ahead and you have to uh, you'll see something flash on the screen like uh, let's say a little picture of a car or a little picture of a truck. And it happens pretty quick so you have to really pay attention to the center of the screen in order to figure out, well, did I just see a car or I just see a truck? And at the same time while you're doing that, a second target appears in your peripheral vision, let's say a road sign, uh, and you have to notice where did that, where did that show up, like 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, if you mention a clock dial around your screen. And it sounds pretty easy to do, right? How hard could it be? I look ahead and I have to notice something in my peripheral vision. But as it happens fast, what happens is you're so focused on what's ahead of you, it becomes quite hard to notice that task in your, that uh, target in your peripheral vision. 
So the way we train people at that task is we started off nice and slow. We make the car and the truck very e easy to tell apart. We put the whole thing up on the screen for a good long time, a half second, a full second. And really almost anyone can get on board with the task at that point. Someone who has bad peripheral vision, maybe because they have a health condition like you, maybe because they've just gotten older. Uh, and so everyone can start. And then the task has smart algorithms that as you get it right, as you notice exactly what's in front of you and notice what's in your peripheral vision, it gets faster step by step. And uh, we can drive the levels of performance uh, of anyone to a very high level. So uh, someone who's struggling with it, you know, it'll start slow and it'll get a little bit faster and then it'll stay slow and then slowly it'll get faster. But someone who's maybe got very sharp vision, it'll drive them to very high levels of performance right off the bat. It's like a personal trainer at the gym who's always trying to figure out, hey, what's the right level of weight this person can lift to get stronger? And so by that mechanism, we can take people from very bad levels of performance to very good levels of performance. And in fact, we can take people who have very good levels of performance to almost superhuman levels of performance. And as a result of that, uh, what happens is that information that's coming from the eye, the brain gets more accustomed to notice things in the peripheral vision quickly and accurately. And then what that translates then is to on-road uh, on road safer driving because people notice things in their peripheral vision more quickly. Is this the kind of training that lasts or do people have to keep doing it over and over to get the benefit so joseph is 20 years younger than i am could he keep doing this for the next 10 20 30 years and keep getting the benefits or is it something he can do once and then enjoy it for the rest of his life well, it's kind of like physical exercise in the sense that, uh, you know, you do it and then you get better. Just like exercise, you get stronger. You train on this task, you get sharper and faster. And then if you stop for a while, you know, the benefits don't wear off right away. You know, it's not like taking a drug where as soon as the Adderall is out of your system, your attention just isn't as good anymore, right? You know, like physical exercise, those benefits will keep going for a while. But they do wear off slowly but surely, again, like physical exercise. So making a regular habit of brain training is good or doing it intensively for a while and then taking a break for a while and then coming back is good as well. Now, in the scientific studies that all this came from, what they showed was with about 10 hours of training, they could improve uh, people's speed and accuracy significantly. And then actually the benefits of those training, although you could see that they were wearing off slowly but surely, but those benefits were still detectable even 10 years after they had done those first 10 hours of training. And that may say amazing, but the brain's kind of weird that way. If you think about learning to ride a bike, you know, my 11-year-old daughter learned how to ride a bike a little while ago, and after about 10 hours riding the bike, you know, she could ride the bike pretty well. And if she stopped riding the bike for a year or two years or three years, her brain's already been permanently changed by that learning experience. She'll still know how to ride a bike. And this kind of learning that we're driving with this kind of brain plasticity-based brain training is very much the same. It lasts for a long time. It does wear off slowly, but it does last for a long time. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Monka with the Posit Science about training your brain to be a better driver. You just mentioned your daughter being 11, and I see that with my two daughters who are 7 and 10. When they start to pick something up, like they're both now in piano, they also do baton twirling, and when they start doing one of the new routines, they are so quick to learn it, to be able to pick it up and remember those new tricks. So maybe is this a better training to go through when you are younger, maybe if you're a 14, 15, 16-year-old driver, maybe even up to 20 years old, that will maybe stay with you longer in life than somebody like me who's uh, just about 50. You know, it's not too late for you. That's the good news. <laughs> Thank you very you much. Right I now. appreciate that. <laughs> now, I know you're trying to wiggle out of doing your brain training here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe you have, some, you have some Netflix shows you want to catch up on or what have you. I have to darn, um, some, but, I have uh, to darn some socks. 
<laughs> but uh, no, it can really help a person at any age. Now, it's true, you know, young people and kids, their brains are more plastic. They learn more quickly. They also forget more quickly, actually, as it turns out. The brain's just ready to change more. It's ready to change by learning something. <laughs> it's ready to change by forgetting it. So while it can take longer for uh, a person uh, who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s to improve uh, through practice, absolutely everyone can. And, you know, the way I encourage people to think about it is, um, hey, it's like physical fitness, right? You would never tell someone, hey, don't bother to get in shape till you're 60 or 70, right? You can just kind of let it all go, and then once you really need it, that's the time to get in shape. You know, that's probably pretty terrible advice. You know, I think the world that we're heading towards as we think about brain health is we're going to think about it like physical health, which is that, hey, it's a good lifelong habit to engage in activities, some of them real-world activities, in this case, some computerized brain training that keep your brain fast and sharp at every age. And those are benefits that will then pay off, of course, your, across your whole life in the same way that being physically active pays off across your whole life. You know, training your brain in the right ways is going to pay off across your whole life as well. Well, since we just covered young versus old, what about men versus women? Do you see a difference in how their brains are able to be trained? And does your training actually separate maybe differences for men or women? You know, we really haven't seen a lot of distinctions on that front, contrast to, you know, whatever stereotypes might be out there about uh, men and women and, uh, and spatial perception or spatial accuracy. Um, you know, if you look, you know, one of the interesting things about the whole science of men versus women is you can look at almost anything and find that men might be slightly better at one thing or women might be slightly better at something else. But those averages kind of mask an underlying truth, which is if you look at all the data, if you just were to look at a, like a dots for every single man, for example, and every single woman, there's such an enormous overlap between any of these things, whether it's spatial perception or 3D ability to ability to manipulate objects in 3D, that the overlap between men and women uh, is much more significant than the differences between them. And so because this training is adaptive, it kind of finds you wherever you are and helps you get sharper as you go. Well, let me ask you this. I, I, just speaking as a, from a skeptic's perspective, what makes this more effective than, say, just 50 hours of okay, I'm going to go on the highway and I'm going to drive for an hour and I'm really going to make it a point to sort of take in everything around me, right? Like what, what makes this uh, brain training more effective than just driving? Yeah, well, I think that's an absolutely great question because the one question anyone should ask in hearing about this is, well, hey, how do I know this works, right? This all sounds good, sounds sensible, but uh, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard because as I heard at the beginning of this podcast, it's a high-minded group. How do we know this actually works? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so the answer is is that uh, you know scientists at Posit Science and then academic collaborators of ours from really all around the country have been working on this specific topic about how to improve brain speed and accuracy to improve real-world performance for, uh, you know, in some cases, more than 20 years now. And it's specific with regard to this kind of brain training. What's been shown in independent studies that were funded by the National Institutes of Health to ask the question, if we took, in particular, older drivers and made them faster and sharper, would they be safer on the road? You know, there's just dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed scientific papers at this point showing this works. One of the most important ones was published a few years ago, and it looked at data from almost a thousand older drivers who had uh, who had uh, uh, allowed their driving records to be uh, followed by the scientists for six years, and they could count how many crashes they had and how many were at fault and how many were not at their fault. And what they showed is that people who went through this specific kind of brain training actually reduced their at fault crashes by about 48%, whereas people who did other activities that were cognitively stimulating, in this case going 
into a class and learning memory tricks or learning uh, learning ways to kind of improve your abstract reasoning, that those groups didn't see changes that were uh, significant or as large as the folks who improved their brain speed. And so what that told us in a very kind of real-world evaluation was that actually, well, expanding how your brain can notice things in your peripheral vision quickly and accurately reduces the number of real at-fault crashes that, that are had. And that was even further confirmed. We, uh, we make this training now available uh, called DriveSharp um, through, uh, through our friends at the American Automobile Association. And uh, in about 20 states now, drivers who are, uh, who are uh, over 60 or so can get this program for free from their AAA insurer. And uh, what that let us do is it let us work with AAA directly to say, okay, in the real world, if you just give this to people and let them train on it, does it reduce the number of crash-related claims that AAA as an insurer gets? And what AAA showed is exactly the same thing, that it significantly reduced the number of crash-related claims that happen. So in that sense, we know it works. Now, if you ask the question as you did, hey, how about why don't we actually just go drive more? <laughs> right. You know, uh, there's tons to be said for that, and, and we've had customers actually contact us and say, hey, I'm a long road, uh, I'm a long range, uh, long haul truck driver. You know, what am I really going to get out of this? Party on the road for 12 hours or so a day. Um, and look, driving a lot is helpful, but if you think about a lot of your real world driving experience, I'm just going to ask you guys who host this pod podcast, how much attention are you paying during every minute of that driving? Would you say your focus is intensely on driving at all? points, or do you find yourself listening to the radio, looking out the window, thinking about what you're doing, you're supposed to get home, and so forth? Oh, yeah. No, you I'm trying. I'm just me? trying to basically keep myself awake because I get up at 2.15 every morning to come in here to work. So, no, yeah, I'm, I'm paying attention maybe a quarter of the time, to be honest. That's right. That's right. How many times have you gotten somewhere and thought, wait a minute, what route did I take? Exactly. And so, uh, you know, in that sense, real-world driving is the test so to speak, if you got there safely or not. But most of us are not able to focus intensely enough to make that training, per se. You know, what we've learned about brain training and learning in general over the past 20 or 30 years is that, you know, your brain has to be in exactly the right state in order to change. You have to be paying attention, which releases a chemical called acetylcholine in your brain that allows your brain to change. And you also have to be rewarded regularly. You have to be getting things right. The teacher has to be patting you on the head and saying, good job, Joseph. Good job, Jason. And that releases a chemical called dopamine. And what dopamine does in your brain, you probably already know, dopamine makes you feel good. It feels good when someone gives you that pat on the head. But dopamine also actually teaches your brain. It says, whatever you did last, do more of that. So if you're just kind of driving out there, listening to the radio, thinking about where you're supposed to go, wishing maybe you didn't have to get up at 2 in the morning, your brain's not pumping acetylcholine. It's not pumping dopamine. You're in what you might call an operating mode. Your brain is doing exactly whatever it has done before. But your brain is not in a changing mode where it's learning, sharpening, improving its skills. By doing this kind of brain training, by doing it intensively on a computer, you can actually engage attention really strongly. You can give people, you know, points and bells and whistles and rewards that pump dopamine. And in that sense, you can actually put the brain in this mode where it's plastic and it's ready to reorganize and change itself in but, a good way. But I think in that in that driving mode, when I'm just, you know, lollygagging it down the road and not really fully paying attention, I think I still am at some point, though, in my head, I am ready for any catastrophe that might be coming my way if the guy in front of me blows a tire or there is some other person coming at or whatever the case may be I still feel like even though I'm not eh, I'm thinking about other things I could still be ready at a split second to be ready to, to do an evasive maneuver of some sort 
Well, sure. Uh, let me say two things about that. On the one hand, you're absolutely right. Like driving's better than not driving, right? You know, if you look at someone's driving skills who, you know, drives regularly two, three hours a day, and you compare it to someone who, uh, you know, is maybe the same age and retired and mostly stays home, of course that person who drives two or three hours a day is going to have sharper driving skills because they're getting that real world input than the person who stays at home. So, you know, you can kind of continue to maintain where you are, maybe even improve a little bit with those kinds of things. And let me also say the kind of brain training we're building with uh, with these drive sharp exercises, you know, it is meant to be, you know, I think of it as part of a complete breakfast, right? It's definitely something that's going to keep you sharper. It's definitely something that's been shown to reduce the risk on the road. I wouldn't want anyone to think that it's meant to substitute for real world driving experience, right? It sharpens up your brain, helps you notice things, things on the road, but it's not designed to teach you how to, you know, correctly downshift when you, you know, you hit a hill, for example. Does anyone still drive sticks? You might, you might know. Oh, uh, yeah. I learned it's been a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> but Drive Sharp's not designed to teach you that. So you need all those real-world driving skills. Uh, you might think about it like um, you know, if you watch, uh, you know, you watch LeBron play basketball. Um, he plays basketball a lot, right? He's pretty good at basketball. Um, but as well as playing a lot of basketball to be good at basketball, he also hits the gym and he works out specific muscle groups because he needs those muscle groups to be strong and ready when he's ready to, to do what he does that makes it so magical on the court. And this kind of brain training is like that kind of exercise for your brain. It gives you the kind of sharp skills you need to be ready on the road. However, I'll say one more thing about your comment, if you don't mind. Everyone thinks they're ready for a crash. There's sure. no driver on the road who's going to say, yeah, I might hit something today. Who the hell knows? <laughs> um, you know, everyone feels like they're ready, and yet every day people crash into things. Right. And what that means is that you th people think they're ready, but the difference in the end is that split-second ability to focus your attention, turn that into neural impulses in your brain, and then turn the wheel or put your foot on the brake. And what this helps is it helps give, give a person that edge in that way. But I, and I've had experiences where I have hit things on the road, uh, but I've also tried to train myself to know, because I, I, we talk about driving so much, not only because it's part of my life, and, I, and I've done this as a career for so long, uh, but I, I tell people, when they if they come across an animal, hit the animal. Don't try to swerve, because yep. that's much more dangerous than, than, than hitting the animal. It's much the same way as hitting something on the road, and, and, and even though it might cause damage to your car, I know how much damage a ladder can cause to a car. Uh, it's still better to hit it. And so I think part of that real-world training has at least helped me in some of these situations. Absolutely. And then what you want is you want the combination of the experience and judgment to know, hey, what are the situations where I want to hit the brake? What are the situations where I want to just drive through it because it's a bag? What are the situations where I want to swerve? You want that real-world experience, and you're not going to learn that from computer exercises. But in order to give your brain the time it needs to make that judgment, you need a brain that's also operating with just a high level of speed and accuracy. So that information comes in through your eyes, it hits your brains, and as quickly as possible, it gets processed so that you then have the time for that judgment to kick in. You can have all of that judgment in the world, and if your brain is operating slowly and inefficiently, you know, you're just not going to detect those threats in time to exercise that knowledge and wisdom that you have. So you actually, you of course need both of those things operating hand in hand. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Monka with Posit Science about the Drive Sharp program and training your brain to be a better driver so one of the advantages humans, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, have over cameras and computers is that we're able to process thousands of scenarios while we're driving in just mere seconds. So what, I mean, whether it's just as simple as avoiding, like, like you said, maybe a bag in the road or a pothole or, or as complex as making the decision to drive off the road 
to maybe my own peril rather than into a bus full of kids in foggy and icy conditions. Could this training be used by computers that run autonomous software that could run our autonomous cars? I mean, could this help the future of self-driving cars drive more like a human? That is a great question. <laughs> really, very, very interesting and thoughtful. And, uh, you know, I think what you raised there is, um, you know, just as we were talking about a moment ago, that what you need to be safe on the road is you need both the experience and wisdom of all those environments, and you need the speed to process the information quickly enough to judge it. Autonomous vehicles have the opposite problem that people do. They are essentially infinitely fast, right? They have no problem packing enough processing power into the back of one of those autonomous vehicles to process every pixel that they can detect with their 360-degree laser radars and their image processing. Speed is not the problem. The problem that autonomous vehicles have is experience and judgment. As many million miles as Google has driven or Waymo has driven or Uber has driven, they still have not experienced all of the things on a road that someone who is, let's say, the age of 50 has experienced since they were 16. You guys have been driving for a long time, each of you, and you know, you've seen almost everything, right? You've driven in the snow and you've seen tractor trailers jackknifing in front of you and you dealt with a biker in front of you who maybe wobbles a little bit in and out of the lane. And that's built up this ton of experience that you can then put to work. You know, when you talk to those autonomous vehicle engineers, what they're desperately trying to do is just gain more and more experience so that their uh, so that their AI systems can can develop that judgment. They've already got the speed under control. They just need to see more wacky things happen in front of those cars so they could teach the cars what to do about them. Mm. So we're probably not going to be much of a help to them. Uh, but what we do want to be a help to is the rest of us mere humans who are going to be driving on the roads. But couldn't you, to be couldn't you feed a simulation to those, let's say, because we know if I told Joseph what it was like when I was driving behind a semi and the tire exploded and what my relation was to that experience, maybe you can develop a computer system or a simulation that then teaches the computer what to do in that scenario. Yeah, I, I think that those uh, those autonomous vehicle engineers are working as hard as they can to do all kinds of things like that. Can we mock up scenarios that are artificial and then teach these AV systems how to work about them? Um, but, uh, you know, the difference between that and what we're doing is, you know, we're trying to make things faster. And again, those computers are already just about as fast as they need to be. But I agree, um, you know, if you could uh, sit down and just kind of invent or just <laughs> do, a, do a, a verbal history of every crazy thing that ever happened to you on the road, you know, that's the kind of thing that's going to be uh, helpful to, uh, to an autonomous vehicle in that way so it can learn to drive under more situations. So if I go through this training, will I get better not only at driving, but will I get better at other things in my life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, for driving, this, this set of exercises is, is you know, is called Drive Sharp because it's a pair of exercises specifically in driving. But Positive Science makes a comprehensive brain training program called Brain HQ, which includes the exercises in Drive Sharp and then quite a few other ones. It turns out that speeding up your brain and making it more accurate it actually helps in all kinds of scenarios, um, and uh, and I'll, I'll give you two. So uh, I, uh, you know, I'm a scientist. I've been in a lab a lot of my life, and I got the craziest call of my life a few years ago when uh, Tom Brady's personal trainer called us up. Have you have you heard of that guy, Tom Brady? Yeah, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. right now, Joseph is not only wearing a Patriots hat; he's got an old school Patriots T-shirt on as well. Wow. Well, yeah, uh, the, he, legend, the legend goes yes, far. No, he is New, he's New England through and that through. That is correct. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we got this uh, amazing call from uh, Tom's personal trainer and said, uh, hey, Tom's been using Brain HQ and he wants to talk with you guys a little bit about brain training. Now, again, I didn't really envision my life as a scientist ever <laughs> flying out to Foxborough yeah. and meeting the greatest quarterback of all time. But, you know, life throws you, life throws you the things and you got to roll with it. So, uh, you know, we got on a plane and flew out to Foxborough and met, uh, met with Tom and met with his uh, personal trainer and actually met with Tom's entire brain imaging team. That was kind of interesting, <laughs> a group of people who were imaging his brain on a regular basis. And what, uh, you know, what we talked about with him, uh, you know, first of all, he's really just the nicest guy in the world. It's really quite striking for me to meet a guy like that and see what a, see what a great guy he really is. And, uh, you know, what he told us was, um, hey, you know, think about me, right? I get the snap, and I have got on the average 2.8 seconds to uh, remember what play we're running, detect my receivers, figure out which one's open, and then hit that guy. And after 2.8 seconds, you know, I'm liable to get tackled. So that's how much time my brain has. And I need my brain to be as fast and accurate as possible. And I've been using these brain training exercises that you put together in Brain HQ, and I can see the difference on the field. I can see those guys faster. I can make that decision more quickly, and I can hit them uh, better. Uh, and that was kind of an amazing thing for us to hear, because when we had built these exercises, you know, as scientists, what we thought was, well, hey, let's take people who are not doing so well, and let's help them do better, right? That's going to help people be safer on the road and so forth. But what we came to appreciate in talking to Tom and his team was that, hey, not only we can take people who are, let's say, you know, at the bottom 10th percentile and make them average performers, you know, we can take people uh, like Tom, who's at the 98th percentile already, and we can help push them to the 99 or the 99.9th percentile. And in that sense, um, you know, we can help all kinds of people, but it just tells you how broad the applications of having a faster and accurate brain are. And then in scientific studies that have been run by the NIH and scientific colleagues all over the country, you know, what we see is that by giving a person a faster and more accurate brain with these types of exercises, not only are they a safer driver, but we actually see uh, improvements in what's called health-related quality of life. Uh, we see uh, reduced depressive symptoms, actually, by having a faster and more accurate brain and by pumping more of these neuromodulators that, um, that help with learning and memory, people actually experience fewer depressive symptoms. Uh, and then most astonishingly, uh, this NIH study uh, followed people who were in their 60s and 70s for 10 years and showed that uh, folks who did this class of brain training exercises actually showed a reduced risk of going on to dementia. Uh, and uh, what that tells us, you know, each result is kind of amazing, but when you step back, what it tells you is that keeping your brain fast and accurate is like, uh, is like maintaining your physical fitness. It just drives a wide range of benefits. Having a healthy brain is important as having a healthy body, and the way you get a healthy brain is you challenge your brain to be fast and accurate in all kinds of things that you do, whether it's these kinds of brain training exercises or whether it's keeping up real-world activities like, well, actually driving. Driving is a good one, as you mentioned, keeping up things like tennis, uh, which, you know, make you fast and accurate to judge where that ball is. Doing things like music, where you have to listen to melodies that are moving quickly and process them quickly and then control your fingers or your foot, depending on what you're playing, quickly and accurately. All of these things are things that challenge the brain to be fast and accurate. Now, the bad news I have to tell you guys is about Sudoku and crossword puzzles. Those are fun. It feels like the wheels inside the brain are turning when you do them, but they don't ask your brain to be faster and more accurate. You're just kind of sitting there thinking. And study after study at this point have told us that doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles does not 
improve cognitive function. It does not change the way that cognitive function slows over time. It's just something fun to do. And in fact, what the evidence has really shown us most recently is that, hey, you know, if you're smart, then you'd probably do a lot of crossword puzzles in Sudoku, so good on you guys. But it's not that doing crossword puzzles in Sudoku <laughs> makes you smart, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So uh, so they're fun. So if you love them, keep doing them. But, uh, but the things that really keep our brain healthy, that keep us safe on the road, that protect against the onset of dementia, they're things that keep your brain fast and accurate. And so those are the activities to seek out, whether they're real-world activities or brain training activities. I'm just making a note here to send a copy of your program to John Elway uh, over at the Broncos <laughs> to help out maybe the next future quarterback. And uh, new head coach, whoever so, that may be. Can we actually use that as a jumping off point? Because Paxton Lynch supposedly played a lot of Fortnite, and I do think it, it's worth asking you this question. What what makes Drive Sharp different from like just playing a lot of Mario Kart or something like that? Yeah, so I play a lot of video games. <laughs> I love video games. <laughs> you can do all so, the you can do the floss and all the Fortnite dances, right? <laughs> I, I do a few of those with my daughter, and I play Overwatch and tons of Assassin's Creed and all that kind of stuff. And um, hey, without a doubt, I think that kind of stuff, I think action video games are, are good for the brain. And in fact, there's really a nice emerging science showing that uh, people who do a lot more action video games have sharper and better visual perception than people who don't. Uh, and there's been some initial trials saying that even if you don't play those kinds of games, starting can make you faster, more accurate. Uh, and that's good. You know, I, I think uh, I really do think that they are, for the, for the most part, good hobbies to engage in, as long as you do it socially in a positive environment and those kinds of things. But the difference between them and Drive Sharp is really the difference between, um, let's say, going for a walk to get your physical exercise and having a personal trainer at the gym who's going to put you on a lot of different equipment and really make sure you're always pushing yourself to your max. In fact, there was a beautiful study done at the University of Florida that directly compared people doing uh, exercises in Drive Sharp and Brain HQ to people who are playing a video game called Crazy Taxi. You guys ever oh, come yeah, across sure, that yeah. a few years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good one, right? You're jumping curves yep, and avoiding exactly. pedestrians. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that although the Crazy Taxi helped you get better at some of these cognitive tasks, which is good, doing the direct brain training, you know, the magnitude of improvements on, uh, on the cognitive performance tests were larger. And so, uh, you know, where, where that leaves me as a scientist is saying, hey, of course, some of these things are good. And, uh, and I think we should, you know, there are going to be health benefits and cognitive benefits to playing them. But it's always going to be possible to specifically engineer a, a training task to be better than just something that's, you know, casual and designed for fun. So in that sense, for people who are looking for real performance benefits, for people who are looking for real health benefits, you know, they should probably turn to the things that have been validated in these kinds of studies. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Monka with Posit Science, uh, talking about being a better driver with uh, brain training. I have one other uh, uh, question before we get to ask about uh, where somebody can get this system and how they can actually use it. We, we've talked here on the show about how deadly it is to drive in other parts of the world, especially in Southeast Asia. Thailand is one of the most deadly places to drive in the world. Do you think this brain training would work for those type of drivers, or is this more of a driver's benefit for developed world countries there in Europe, United States? Because I know in different parts of the world, they drive differently, different modes of transportation, that sort of thing. But they also, I think, have a different mentality when it comes to driving. Yeah, I think that it can help more in places when there's, uh, shall we say, more unusual events on the road. 
So if we, uh, you know, if we think about what the brain training doing is, is sharpening the speed of your awareness to notice hazards on the road. So you can be the one who takes an action to stay safe, uh, as we talked about. You know, that's going to be even more useful in driving scenarios that are, you know, more unpredictable and more chaotic. You know, if you think about, you know, the safest place you can drive in America is you can be driving down a long, straight, empty highway, right? You're, you're not going to crash because nothing's happening, right? Unless you fall asleep. You know, unless, unless you fall asleep. Yeah, right, because you've got a job that gets you in there at 2.15 in the morning. Yeah. That's its own hazard. Um, but, you know, if we think about driving environments in Southeast Asia, I did a little bit of driving in Turkey when I was there a number of years ago. You know, it ain't like driving on the highway no, all by yourself, right? You know, you got uh, 14 different kinds of vehicles on the roads. You got bikers, you got pedestrians jumping in, you have animals kind of stopping into the road. And, uh, you know, in many cases, maybe somewhat less of a regard for uh, you know, traffic laws that we experience here. And, uh, of course, in all those situations, you need a sharp, fast brain to react to them quickly. Now, again, Drive Sharp's not going to teach you the rules of the road, right? You know, you've got to drive on the right or you've got to drive on the left. You need to know that. That's an aspect of driving overseas. Yeah. But, uh, but it should be able to help drivers, uh, you know, cope with the unexpected and, uh, and, then, use your, and then put their judgment to work uh, faster and more accurately. So we, you just talked about how AAA members over 60 were able to get the system for free. I'm sure it costs something. So if somebody's listening, they want to go through this program, how, uh, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so it's available online right now. Anyone can just uh, go to their web browser and type in uh, Brain HQ, like Brain Headquarters, brainhq.com, and go to the website. You can register for free, and it'll give you an exercise, one exercise per day, just to try out to see if you like it, and it's for you. And then if people subscribe, it's you know it's meant to be accessible to everyone. So it's eight bucks a month uh, for people who subscribe on an annual basis. Uh, and uh, then, of course, free from AAA uh, if you're insured by AAA in many states. And then the other thing that's pretty wonderful is we've been working with uh, with a company called Demco that uh, helps libraries deploy electronic systems. And BrainHQ is actually available for free for more than 250 local libraries across the country right now. You can check it out just like you'd check out an electronic book. So uh, check to see if your library has it, and if they don't, ask them why not. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> otherwise, then, just come onto the website. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm sure I could probably save that eight bucks a month by having maybe lower insurance costs if I tell them I've already taken this brain training. Cha-ching. Uh, you know, uh, I should have mentioned that too. In fact, AAA, because they've seen the value in their own hands of reducing crashes, uh, anywhere that AAA offers this program for free, you'll get an insurance discount if you uh, finish just 10 hours of training. Um, so uh, that will absolutely put that money back in your pocket. That's interesting. Well, we, we appreciate we've uh, kept you on uh, on here, the podcast, for a long time. I think this is the longest interview we've had so far yes, sir. on the Driving You Crazy oh. podcast. So you have that to uh, at least put there in your resume, if you would like. Right next to Tom Brady. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I'm honored. <laughs> yes, that's right. Those will be the two top lines. <laughs> I'm honored. I, I, I figure out somewhere out there you have a listener who's driving to work at 5 a.m. and listen to the podcast, and if we can keep them awake and keep their attention on the road, then, we, then we've done our work together. If I don't Amen. see this as part of your LinkedIn tomorrow morning, I'm going to be very upset. Uh, no, <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Henry Monka with Posit Science. We appreciate your time so much here on the Drive your crazy podcast oh it's fun to talk to you guys you got a lot of you've done a lot of thinking about driving that's a lot of great questions <laughs> yeah really that's it. it that's what we do that's uh just basically all we do and all i've done for a long time so well, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys thanks wow that was great yes, i mean it was. we are high-minded but he is even more super high-minded yes i think it's the doctorate you, th- <laughs> you think so i think so i i had plans on getting a doctorate when i first moved to denver back in 93 i had a hard time finding a radio job 
And so I had applied to CU to get my master's in communication theory and then maybe even work on a, on a doctorate and become a professor, go into teaching. But uh, I got a job at K-Big Sports Talk Radio instead and started work. And so I, I, I dished, ditched the uh, whole high-minded master's slash doctorate career path. Smell you later. And here I sit yep. <laughs> <laughs> here at the old Denver 7. But now that I know that uh, several of these auto clubs, uh, you know, that AAA has it, we have obviously connections with AAA, uh, and that maybe your insurance company will pick up the cost. I mean, why not go out and see, take some of the sample tests and see how it affects my driving? I think I'm going to give it a shot. I think I, I'd just be most curious to see how it does affect the day-to-day stuff, right? Right, like, exactly. Like, I, think, I think anything, anytime you can take a step forward in some aspect of your life, like this is a good thing. And if it's good enough for Tom Brady, it's good enough for us. Well, for me at least, that was fascinating. That part is fascinating. Yep, it really is, and, and it's interesting how it will help the elite athletes. And he said going up from like ninety-eight percent to ninety-nine percent, but for him and for those elite athletes, that makes a big deal. Yes, sir. I mean, it makes a big difference. Anyway, it's Stock Show Week. We have the uh, Stock Show Parade walking downtown Denver tomorrow. We have cattle in downtown tomorrow. It's craziness. I'm going to go to the rodeo on Saturday. That's exciting. Oh, I love the Stock Show. It is the greatest. It is just the greatest. I'll let you know how that works out. Appreciate that. Keep your Christmas lights up until the stock show's over. You're supposed to. I already took mine down, though, because nobody that's going to the stock show is going to be in my neighborhood. Also, don't keep your Christmas lights up that long, you hippie. (laughs) Just saying. But that's why the city and county, I talked about this when I, all right, forever ago on KOA when I was doing overnights, uh, we used to talk about that, and every year people would say, why are the city and county light buildings on right now? And I said, because of the stock show. Get with the times, baby. Get with the times. Thanks again for listening. As always, we wish you would uh, rinse, wash, and repeat uh, the wa- the podcast. It's actually rate, subscribe, repeat, and review. Yes, rate, subscribe, review, repeat. Thanks. Do all d- just do all of the above, but we also want you to wash as well. Yes. Uh, thanks again for listening, and until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I am anti-flight attendant, tipping advocate, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.